From New York, this is Democracy Now! This is an official state document uh, essentially recommending the government to carry out an ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And it's, it has been written in a time when uh, these ideas are, are making their way into the Israeli mainstream public discourse and to Israeli media. As the death toll from Israel's bombardment of Gaza tops 9,200, one Israeli government ministry is recommending the forcible transfer of the entire population of Gaza to Egypt. We'll speak to an Israeli journalist who helped expose the story. Then, as Secretary of State Tony Blinken visits Israel, we'll speak to Josh Paul. He recently resigned from his high-level State Department job, where he oversaw arms transfers to Israel and other foreign nations. I resigned from the State Department two weeks ago because I believe that U.S. arms should never be used to commit gross violations of human rights or contribute to civilian casualties. And we know that's what's happening in Gaza today. I also resigned because I believe that for 20 years we've pursued a dead-end policy which has not led to security for Palestinians or for Israelis. But when I tried to raise these issues within the State Department, there was absolutely no appetite for any debate. Plus, we go to Boston, where 23 people were arrested Thursday as hundreds of faith leaders and clergy rallied to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's army says it's encircled Gaza City as international condemnation continues to grow over its 28-day assault on the besieged Palestinian territory, where more than 9,200 people have been killed, including at least 3,800 children. Among the dead and injured are Palestinians sheltering at a United Nations-run school in the Jabalia refugee camp, where at least 27 were killed in an Israeli strike Thursday. Nowhere is safe. They even hit the school. They said flee to the schools. They then targeted the schools. Where are the Arab leaders? A group of seven senior United Nations human rights experts warned Thursday, quote, time is running out to prevent genocide and humanitarian catastrophe, unquote. The Palestine News Agency reports journalist Mohammed Abu Hattab was killed in an Israeli strike on his home in the southern Gaza Strip on Thursday, along with 11 members of his family, including his wife, son and brother. Abu Hattab was a reporter for Palestine TV. His last on-air report was about deadly Israeli airstrikes in and around his neighborhood in Khan Yunus. His colleague, journalist Salman al-Bashir, burst into tears during a live broadcast upon learning of Abu Hattab's killing. As he spoke, al-Bashir tore off his helmet and protective vest labeled press and threw them to the ground. These are just slogans that we are wearing. They don't protect any journalists at all. These shields don't protect us. We are victims, directly on live television. We are losing souls, one by one, with complete impunity. 
Salman al-Bashir tore off his press gear, and the anchor who was talking to him also wept. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, at least 36 reporters and media workers have been killed since the conflict erupted on October 7th. Israeli forces killed at least nine more Palestinians during overnight raids in the occupied West Bank. One of the victims, Eham al-Shafei, was just 14 years old. Separately, another 14-year-old named Hamdan Omar Hamdan died Thursday of injuries sustained earlier this week from Israeli army gunfire. Elsewhere, settlers have attacked Palestinian homes and stores in the town of Deir Sharaf, near west of Nablus. The UN's human Humanitarian Affairs Office warns vigilante-style settler attacks have killed 29 people across the West Bank this year. 145 West Bank Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks since October 7th. In Lebanon, Hezbollah fighters launched simultaneous attacks on 19 Israeli positions along Israel's border on Thursday, prompting Israel to respond with warplanes, helicopter gunships, artillery and tank fire. At least two people in the Israeli town of Kiryat Shmona were wounded in the exchange of fire, the largest skirmish since Hamas's October 7th attack. The cross-border violence came as Hezbollah's leader Hassan Nasrallah is set to make his first public remarks today on Israel's assault on Gaza. In the United States, the House of Representatives has approved a $14.3 billion military aid package for Israel, largely along party lines. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says Democrats won't take up the bill after House Republicans excluded funding for Ukraine's military and proposed slashing IRS funding to pay for the weapons to Israel. President Biden has asked Congress for a $106 billion emergency spending package that includes funding for Israel, Taiwan, in Ukraine. The request includes an unprecedented provision to entirely waive congressional notification of the future sale of military equipment and weapons to Israel, including stocks of ballistic missiles and artillery shells. This is Vice President Kamala Harris speaking from London Thursday after talks with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. We are not going to create any conditions on the support that we are giving Israel to defend itself. The White House continues to rule out calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, a day after Biden said Israel's military should allow for humanitarian pauses. On Thursday, Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin became the first member of the Senate to call for a ceasefire during an interview on CNN. An effort should be made to engage in conversation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Let's face it, this has gone on for decades. Uh, Whatever the rationale from the beginning, it has now reached an intolerable level. Bahrain has called its ambassador, recalled its ambassador from Israel in response to the ongoing bombardment of Gaza. This follows rare protests in the Persian Gulf nation demanding the reversal of a diplomatic normalization agreement between Bahrain and Israel. Latin American governments have also intensified their condemnation of Israel's attacks, with Mexico, Peru and Argentina all speaking out this week. On Thursday, the Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, sharply criticized U.S. support for Israel's assault after talks at the White House with President Biden. 
We do not accept that we are made to choose between one side or the other. We choose humanity, and both these attacks by Hamas have no justification and deserve global condemnation. And what the government of Benjamin Netanyahu is doing today also deserves our clearest condemnation. Our clearest condemnation. The right of a state to defend itself has limits, and those limits are respecting the lives of innocent civilians, especially children, in international humanitarian law. In Philadelphia, at least 350 people were arrested Thursday after hundreds of faith leaders and activists blocked a train terminal demanding state and local officials support a ceasefire in Gaza. Imams, rabbis, reverends, pastors, clerics, and Buddhist monks led the massive crowd in traditional songs and prayers, while hundreds more rallied outside 30th Street Station in Philadelphia. The peaceful action was organized by Philadelphia's chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. In North Carolina, dozens of Palestinian solidarity protesters blocked a highway in Durham Thursday during rush hour as they chanted, ceasefire now. Here in New York, dozens of students walked out of a class at Columbia University taught by Hillary Clinton protesting the school's role in targeting Palestinian solidarity activists, they said. Wednesday's action came after photographs of students who signed a declaration critical of Israel's assault on Gaza were featured on doxing trucks parked near campus last week with the words, Columbia's leading anti-Semites. The group Accuracy and Media deployed similar doxing trucks at Harvard, at CUNY and UPenn in Philadelphia. Later in the broadcast, we'll hear voices from a Palestinian rights protest in Boston, where at least 23 people were arrested. In upstate New York, Cornell University canceled classes today after a student was charged this week for posting violent anti-Semitic comments to a campus website and threatening to shoot up the school's kosher dining hall located at the Center for Jewish Living. This comes amidst a surge in anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim threats on college campuses across the United States since October 7th. In Arizona, more than 100 Jewish and Palestinian solidarity activists held a die-in protest, blocking the main entrance to Raytheon's office in Tucson for over an hour Wednesday. Protesters condemned what they say is Raytheon's complicity in the genocide of Palestinians for supplying missiles, bombs and weapon systems to Israel. Share prices of arms manufacturers, including Raytheon, have risen sharply since Israel began its assault on the Gaza Strip. Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes acknowledged in a recent earnings call his company stands to profit from increased arms sales to Israel and Ukraine. Next tranche, uh, the president's hundred plus billion dollar uh, request, which is more than forty billion dollars for Ukraine. Uh, what you're going to see is the same things that we have been seeing, but in much higher quantities. I think really across the entire Raytheon portfolio, you're going to see a benefit uh, of this restocking on top of what we think is going to be an increase in the DOD top line. Russian President Vladimir Putin has officially withdrawn Russia's ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. The U.S. has signed but never ratified the global agreement banning testing of nuclear weapons. Russia says it will not resume nuclear testing unless the U.S. does. The United Nations General Assembly has voted to condemn the United States embargo on Cuba for the 31st consecutive year. 
On Thursday, 187 countries voted in favor of lifting the decades-old sanctions. Only the U.S. and Israel voted against the motion. This is Cuba's foreign minister, Bruno Rodriguez. El bloqueo viola el derecho a la vida. The embargo violates the right of life, the right to health, and the right to education and the well-being of all Cuban men and women. Our families feel the effects of this blockade through the fact that shops are lacking goods and there are long queues, as well as excessively high prices and low salaries. Mexico's government has announced a $3.4 billion project to rebuild Acapulco a week after Hurricane Otis slammed into the Pacific Coast City as a Category 5 storm, leaving a trail of devastation. 46 people have been confirmed dead. Another 58 remain missing, though some local officials believe the true toll is high. Meanwhile, extreme weather has killed at least 12 people across France, Spain, Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands and Italy. Storm Kiran brought hurricane-force winds to southern England and France's northwestern coast before dumping record levels of rainfall on large swaths of Europe. This year remains on track to become Europe's hottest year since at least 1940. Here in New York, the FBI raided the Brooklyn home of Brianna Suggs, Mayor Eric Adams' chief fundraiser. Thursday's early morning raid came as part of a federal corruption investigation into whether Mayor Adams' 2021 campaign received illegal donations from Turkey. The raid prompted Adams to cancel a trip to Washington, D.C., U-turning after he was already en route. He sent an aide to attend meetings with White House officials and the mayors of Chicago and Denver over what he called the asylum seeker crisis. A Manhattan jury has found the disgraced founder of the fallen cryptocurrency exchange FTX guilty of defrauding customers and lenders. Sam Bankman-Fried faces up to 110 years in prison at a hearing scheduled for March when he'll be sentenced for convictions ranging from wire fraud to money laundering. He faces another criminal trial in 2024 on charges he committed bank fraud and bribed Chinese officials. In Tennessee, a former Memphis police officer pleaded guilty Thursday to two felony charges in federal court for the beating death of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black father. Video footage shows five police officers from the elite Scorpion unit brutally beating, tasing and pepper spraying Nichols, who died three days later as part of a deal for his guilty plea. Desmond Mills Jr. will cooperate with state prosecutors in their separate cases against the officers, which include second-degree murder charges. And domestic abuse survivor Tracy McCarter is suing the city of New York and five New York City police officers for wrongful prosecution over her husband's death. Tracy McCarter, a nurse and grandmother, was holding a knife during a violent encounter with her abusive husband who fell and impaled himself. McCarter called 911 and unsuccessfully administered first aid. New York police officers falsely claimed she confessed to intentional homicide and she was sent to Rikers jail to await trial on secondary murder charges. The charges were eventually dismissed after a public pressure campaign and intervention from Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. This is Trady McCarter speaking at a press conference Thursday. I just want for them to have accountability for all of the losses that followed. I wasn't able to work for three years. I missed the births of my grandchildren. I couldn't go to funerals of my grandmother, my aunt. You know, I lost a lot. And only 10 days before the trial was set to start, the charges were dismissed, even though I, I know the prosecutor knows that they didn't have a case. To see our interview with Tracy McCarter, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up is the death toll from Israel's bombardment of Gaza tops 9,200.
we'll look at how one Israeli government agency is proposing the forcible transfer of the entire population of Gaza to Egypt. Stay with us. Promises. Hi, Azatri. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's facing growing international condemnation for its 28-day assault on Gaza. More than 9,200 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza over the past four weeks, including at least 3,800 children. This, according to the health ministry in Gaza. On Thursday, a group of U.N. experts released a statement to express their, quote, deepening horror over Israel's repeated airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp, the largest in Gaza, that have killed at least 195 people in recent days. The group of experts said, quote, the Israeli airstrike on a residential complex in the Jabalia refugee camp is a brazen violation of international law and a war crime, attacking a camp sheltering civilians, including women and children is a complete breach of the rules of proportionality and distinction between combatants and civilians, they said. Residents in Jabalia say entire sections of the refugee camp have been leveled. The area has been completely destroyed. There are no Hamas fighters here. These are all civilians. They are all innocent people. No resistance here. There was a bakery here and houses. One of them had 100 people inside, and another had 50 people. This is destruction. This is a war against God and his prophet. It's a war of extermination. As Israeli troops encircle Gaza City and intensify its aerial bombardment, there are growing questions over Israel's long-term plan for Gaza. One Israeli government office, the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence, has proposed the permanent transfer of Gaza's 2.3 million residents to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. In a document dated October 14th, the small governmental body stated the forced displacement of Gaza civilians to Egypt would, quote, yield positive and long-term strategic results. It lays out a three-stage process, the establishment of tent cities in Sinai and the opening of a humanitarian corridor, followed by construction of permanent cities in northern Sinai and the creation of a, quote, sterile zone of several kilometers within Egypt, and says, quote, the return of the population to activities residences near the border with Israel should not be allowed, unquote. Many Palestinians in northern Gaza have refused to follow Israeli orders to vacate their homes out of fear they'll never be allowed back. It's unclear how Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or his cabinet have responded to the proposals. But the Biden administration has publicly opposed plans for the mass transfer of Palestinians. Secretary of State Tony Blinken's in Israel today, where he's reportedly seeking a humanitarian pause to the bombing. Blinken is also planning to travel to Jordan, where he's expected to assure Jordan that the U.S. opposes transferring Palestinians to Egypt or Jordan. For more, we're joined by Yuval Abraham. 
an Israeli journalist based in Jerusalem who reports for Plus 972 magazine and Local Call. He helped expose this proposal in his piece headlined, Expel All Palestinians from Gaza, Recommends Israeli Government Ministry. Yuval has also reported on the growing number of attacks on Palestinians by Israeli soldiers and settlers in the occupied West Bank. He joined us Wednesday during a rainstorm in Jerusalem. I asked him to talk about how he knows the document from the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence is real. I know it's true because I have verified it in front of the intelligence ministry. And as you said, Amy, it's a document that essentially asks the question, uh, what will happen to Gazan's civilian population after the war? And, God, and, and this intelligence ministry writes um, a policy pieces and shares them with the defense establishment inside Israel. And uh, I mean, as you have mentioned, uh, the 10-page document goes quite into detail um, and um, explicitly recommends this uh, process of forced transfer. Uh, it, it also recommends to frame it um, in front of the international community as a humanitarian necessity, as something that is better than the alternatives that it uh, posits in, in the document, which is that the, the population will stay and, and die in their tens of thousands. Now, I think it's important to, 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 to stress that uh, this ministry is a small ministry. Despite its name, it does not actually deal with classified information, and it is not actually responsible for an Israeli intelligence organization. Um, and it is not considered a very consequential or influential ministry in Israel. However, this is an official state document uh, essentially recommending the government to carry out an ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And it's, it has been written in a time when uh, these ideas are, are making their way into the Israeli mainstream public discourse and to Israeli media. I think, Amy, you know, uh, a lot of us, a lot of people in Israel uh, are feeling shock. Um, they feel a need that things will not return to the way they were before October 7th. They talk about security, especially after um, all of the atrocities that were committed by Hamas on October 7th and the people who were illegally uh, kidnapped and taken to Gaza and, and, and the murders. And I think we have uh, politicians who have no uh, political vision for the future, and they are unfortunately using this uh, 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 sense of, 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 of wanting security to commit horrible and terrible war crimes in Gaza and killing already more than 3,000 uh, children. And I think this document and this bombing campaign are both a reflection of a worldview that only has force um, in its disposal to try and deal with a political problem. And the dangerous thing about this worldview is that it always fails. And when it fails, uh, there are calls to use more force and more force. And if you push this worldview to the extreme, um, you will eventually end up with ideas like the ideas that we are reading about in this document. And that's why, and this is the final thing that... For now, I would say, that's why, you know, as, as, as an Israeli, it's very, very important for me to stress that I don't think we can have security if Palestinians do not have freedom. And if we do not have a long-term political vision for the future that will end the situation where I have rights and freedom of movement and a way to vote, and Palestinians who are living next to me don't, we are not going to uh, have security. And I am very worried that, you know... I feel that this war on Gaza will not bring us security, and it will end even if we topple down Hamas by killing so many Palestinian civilians, we will create the next Hamas, and I don't think it's, I think this killing is unjustifiable, and I worry that the next war will come, and they will say, 
you know, it didn't work. Now we have to use even more force and even more force. And even though this document right now might not seem feasible, um, I think this is the dangerous route that we are currently in. And this is why it's so important to contextualize things and talk about a long-term political solution to the problem. And, and our leaders are not doing that right now. Yuval, can you talk about where this document comes from, who it went to, and how real it is? Yes, so this document came from the intelligence ministry, um, which has a very small budget, um, and it seems like they have initiated it. They usually send out their documents to the Israeli different government offices and to intelligence organizations and the Israeli security establishment. So can you talk about um, what it means to have exposed it and how they're responding? Yeah, you know, for me this is very, very worrying and troubling because the government has not really acknowledged the paper at all. And none of us really know what the end game of the government is in Gaza. Um, I think in Israeli media it has been downplayed as something that um, is going to harm Israel's legitimacy for the war abroad. A lot of people are not taking it very seriously. This ministry is not considered, as I said, a very influential ministry. But we did not hear any uh, clear and cut rejection of the document uh, by the government. Um, and yeah. Can you explain what the uh, right-wing Israeli Misgav Institute is, uh, who has a similar proposal? Sure, yeah, it's a very interesting and, and strange story. So this right-wing think tank called Misgav, which is headed by uh, Mayor Ben Shabbat, who was, he's a very close associate with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's a very senior uh, former Israeli security figure. And they published, a little over two weeks ago, um, a report that has the same identical conclusion, that Israel needs to transfer forcibly transfer all the civilians in Gaza, in, in Gaza to, to Egypt. And uh, this report was, was authored and written by Amir Whiteman, who is also a Likud member and an associate of Gila Gamliel, which is the Likud member who heads the Ministry of Intelligence, who wrote a report with the same conclusions. Now, the, these connections between uh, the Likud and the right-wing think tank uh, are also apparent because a month ago, the Ministry of Intelligence has hired this uh, Misgav Institute um, to carry out research as a freelancer for the government ministry. Um, now, officially, the Ministry of Intelligence, uh, you know, I've spoken to sources there. They're claiming, you know, this document, we completely stand behind the recommendation and we authored it independently. If you ask me, it's very clear that there is a mix here between the government ministry and this extreme right-wing think tank, and it's all, it all seems to be coming back to different sorts of um, officials in the ruling party, the Likud. And what about the role of Egypt? Earlier this month, Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, said he would reject the forced displacement of millions of Palestinians into Sinai, which is Egypt. This is what he said. Egypt rejects any attempt to resolve the Palestinian issue by military means or through the forced displacement of Palestinians from their land, which would come at the expense of the countries of the region. 
The idea of displacement of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip to Egypt simply means that a similar situation will occur by the displacement of Palestinians from the West Bank to Jordan. This means that the idea of a Palestinian state that we are discussing and that the international community is discussing will no longer be possible. So that's what President Sisi said, the Egyptian president. And this just came in from uh, Ynet. Um, uh, Middle East Eye uh, reported on the Israeli news outlet saying, Israel's proposing writing off a significant chunk of Egypt's international debts through the World Bank to entice the cash-strapped Abdel Fattah el-Sisi government to open its doors for displaced Palestinians. Again, that's according to the Israeli YNET news site, Yuval. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's clear that uh, the, the fact that Egypt is refusing to, to open its borders is, is one of several reasons why this forced transfer plan will not manifest. Um, you know, I think that it is a feasible scenario if, if they do open their borders and um, tens or hundreds of thousands of Palestinians leave Gaza, that at least some of them will not be allowed to return. This has happened in 1967 and 1948. Um, and the document, which, by the way, you can read in full on the Plus 972 magazine website or the local call website, um, actually deals with this. It says, it reads in the documents that uh, Egypt will have an obligation under humanitarian law to allow for um, um, for Palestinian civilians to to flee and enter and, and find refuge in its territory, and it calls on enlisting the United States and other Western countries to pressure Egypt um, to do this. Now, um, you know, everything we're we're in, in a situation of, of of extreme fog, and and it's and it's unclear uh, how this will develop. Um, but the fears uh, are are completely justifiable. Yuval, I want to thank you for bearing through this rainfall uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, but I wanted to go to yeah, another piece. I wanted to go to another piece that you've written um, uh, saying uh, the headline, Settlers Take Advantage of Gaza War to Launch West Bank Pogroms. While the U.S. government, before Hamas's surprise October 7th attack that killed up to 1,400 Israelis, um, the U.S. government, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, something like 10 days before, said the Middle East is quiet now and we can move on to other issues. Um, but in fact, in the West Bank, uh, it was the deadliest year in years, right? You had more than a Palestinian a day being killed, either by the Israeli military or Jewish settlers. And now, since October 7th, Israeli settler attacks have resulted in at least 115 Palestinian deaths, more than 2,000 injured, nearly 1,000 others forced to flee their homes. Can you talk about uh, what it's like to be in the West Bank, this increased Jewish settler violence, and also you have a friend who was the target of the violence? Yes, yes, Amy, of course. I mean, I've just received a text message. 123 Palestinians have been uh, already killed in the West Bank since the beginning of, of the war, and seven of them have been actually murdered by Israeli settlers. And I, I spend a lot of my time in the West Bank, specifically in a region called Masafariyata, which is a region in the southern edge of the West Bank, a community of villages that for decades have faced really 
intense pressure and violence from the Israeli army that constantly destroys their homes and refuses to give them permits, and from settlers that have been attacking them. And I think what is happening now is that uh, settlers and, and soldiers are using this chaos of the war um, to, to, to continue and, and to end sort of this forced transfer. And, it's, and it's, it was extremely horrifying to be there over the past few nights. We've had incidents where settlers entered one village, it's called Susia, they grabbed the boy and his father, and they told them, you have 24 hours to leave the village or we're going to murder everybody in the village. Um, we, we had an incident where one settler went down to the village and actually shot a, a Palestinian who was standing next to the mosque. There are incidents of torture, of abuse, of humiliation, and it's happening every night. Like, I stayed up uh, last night with a family. They're not sleeping, and everybody is just, like, we see the settlers entering the village. Um, and I think that... You know, uh, according to human rights organization, Israeli human rights organization, B'Tselem, 13 Palestinian communities have, have already been displaced uh, in the West Bank due to this settler violence. Um, and, and uh, yeah, and, 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 and it will just increase and increase uh, as long as the war continues, the bombing on Gaza continues, and this uh, situation continues. You know, the national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, this is a man who, what, in the last 15 years was convicted in Israeli court of being, uh, supporting a terrorist organization and inciting violence against Palestinians. Um, he announced the purchasing of 10,000 rifles for Israelis in West Bank settlements. Can you talk about what that means? Has that been carried out? Um, and what supporting settler violence um, it, what that means, particularly now. Yeah, of course. So what is going on right now is a complete inability to even differentiate between who is a soldier and who is a settler. Is it a settler that is in uh, reserves? Is it a settler that received a weapon from Bengvir and put on, you know, his army uniform? Um, are, are these soldiers? Um, there is a complete confusion, and we are seeing a lot of quote-unquote independent settler initiatives where they are putting on soldier uniforms and, 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 and going into villages and harassing Palestinians. This is happening all over Area C. This is the way the military refers to it, which is essentially all of the open territories in the West Bank, where there are 180 um, small Palestinian villages and all the Israeli settlements. And Israel's policy for many years has been to, to try to forcibly evict uh, these 180 communities. And I think now, with many more settlers receiving weapons, with all of these incidents of murder and threats, this eviction is taking place. And I think definitely the arming of so many people is part of that process, um, which is you know, understood in Israeli society also as a response to October the 7th, the need of people to be armed, to be able to defend themselves. At least in the West Bank, these weapons are used to evict Palestinians from their homes. And finally, how have Israeli activists and international charities um, been involved in supporting Palestinians in the West Bank? So, I'm not sure about international charities. I mean, I know that a lot of them have um, supplied these communities that are at risk of forced transfer um, 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 uh, little homes that they can uh, live in because Israel always comes and destroys their homes. They can't get building permits. And it, and it was extremely ironic. Like, I, I was in a village called Zenuta in this area of Masafariata two days ago. And the residents were dismantling all of these homes using their own hands. 
and, and they, were, they were essentially leaving the village. I spoke to a 70-year-old person uh, who told me that, you know, we drank tea and he said, this is probably the last time I will drink tea in, in this place that I grew up in. So these international organizations, you know, all of, all, of, all of this support is now just being dismantled by the residents who are afraid for their lives. I think what we as Israeli activists are trying to do there, and this is not also not always working, but the fact that we are Israeli, the fact that we speak Hebrew, um, gives us a f certain privilege. And when these attacks happen, we try to de-escalate the situation. We try to, to make sure that the settlers that are attacking the village see us, that we are first, that we can, that we can film them, that there are journalists here. We try to talk in Hebrew. Um, but things, you know, death is now everywhere and things are deteriorating really, really quickly. And I feel like all, all of the things that we were previously doing are now not working. And, and I, you know, again, I have to ask the, the world to, to, to wake up, to call for a ceasefire. Um, if we continue to destroy Gaza like this, it will destroy us as well. We will not have security in the future. It will destroy the West Bank and the possibility of ever living here uh, in inequality and in peace between Israelis and Palestinians. So, so it's time to change course and talk about the political issues at hand. Yuval Abraham, an Israeli journalist based in Jerusalem, who reports for Plus 972 magazine and Local Call, will link to his article, Expel All Palestinians from Gaza, Recommends Israeli Government Ministry. When we come back, we speak to Josh Paul. He recently resigned from the State Department in protest of the Biden administration's policies on Israel and Palestine. Back in 30 seconds. They've killed all the little ones While their faces still smile With their guns and their fury They erase their young lives No longer to laugh No longer to be a child Oh, they've killed all the little ones While their faces still smile Now they're burying the little ones and they're making the graves deep So the world cannot see That tonight we may sleep The Little Ones, a new song released this week by Yusuf Islam, also known as Cat Stevens. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Amidst growing international condemnation of Israel's month-long assault on Gaza, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in Israel today to meet with Israeli officials, where he continued to emphasize Israel's right to defend itself following the October 7th Hamas attack. Meanwhile, the White House continues to dismiss calls for a full ceasefire, saying instead any pauses in fighting should be temporary and localized. This comes as the independent news outlet in these times reports the White House has requested an unprecedented loophole in arms spending to allow it to, quote, be able to conduct arms deals with Israel in complete secrecy without oversight from Congress or the public, unquote. Even as experts say, Israel's been using U.S.-supplied weapons to commit war crimes, unquote. 
Meanwhile, a new HuffPost report cites five current and one recently deported State Department official who say their, quote, expertise and standard decision-making processes are being treated as largely irrelevant to President Joe Biden's strategy on the war, which prioritizes support for Israel, unquote. One official described, quote, particular concern about the town hall for the department's branch on human rights. Managers who describe the branch as state's conscience indicate Indicated they aren't sure if they're getting through to more senior officials. For more, we're joined by Josh Paul, the State Department official who resigned last month in protest of Biden's push to increase arms sales to Israel amidst its siege on Gaza, calling it short-sighted, destructive and contradictory. In his resignation letter that went viral, Josh Paul wrote, quote, we cannot be both against occupation and for it. We cannot be both for freedom and against it. And we cannot be for a better world while contributing to one that is materially worse. I believe to the core of my soul that the response Israel is taking and with it the American support both for that response and for the status quo of the occupation will only lead to more and deeper suffering for both the Israeli and the Palestinian people and is not in the long-term interest. And it is not in the long-term American interest, unquote. Josh Paul is former director of Congressional and Public Affairs for the Bureau of Political Military Affairs in the State Department, which oversees arms transfers to Israel and other foreign nations. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Josh Paul. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to join you. Can you elaborate on why you decided to resign? You're a veteran State Department official. Why you said no? Yes, thank you. I, I decided to resign for three reasons. Uh, the first and most pressing of which is the very, I believe, uncontroversial fact that U.S. provided arms should not be used to massacre civilians, should not be used to result in, in massive civilian casualties. Uh, and that is what we are seeing in Gaza uh, and what we were seeing you know, very soon uh, after the October 7th horrific attack by Hamas. Uh, I do not believe arms should be, U.S. provided arms should be used to kill civilians. It is that simple. Uh, secondly, I also believe uh, that, you know, as your previous guest identified, uh, there is no military solution here, and we are providing arms to Israel on a path uh, that has not led to peace, uh, has not led to security, neither for Palestinians nor for Israelis. It is a, a moribund process uh, and a dead-end uh, policy. Uh, and yet, when I tried to raise both of these concerns with State Department leadership, there was no appetite for discussion, uh, no opportunity to, uh, you know, look at any of the potential arms sales and, and raise concerns about them, simply a directive to move forward as quickly as possible. And so I felt I had to resign. So talk more about that. Talk more about what kind of dialogue goes on at the State Department. And if you, for example, have met with Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, not to mention President Biden, to voice your concerns. And what about other uh, veteran State Department officials? Uh, so typically there is a very robust uh, policy process in the State Department for arms transfers. Uh, and there are a lot of those, right? So we're talking about about 20,000 arms sale cases a year. Uh, that the State Department processes, which could be anything from uh, bullets to radios to fighter jets. 
Uh, and for each of those, there is a lengthy process sometimes uh, that, that looks at, you know, what are the pros and cons of the sale? What are its human rights implications? Uh, that has not happened in this context for Israel. Uh, I, and as I say, when I raised those concerns uh, against the existing laws, against the existing policies, uh, there was no appetite for that discussion. I have not personally uh, spoken to Secretary Blinken about this, uh, nor certainly to President Biden. Uh, but I know that uh, in the time since I left, there has been uh, increasing discussion within the State Department, uh, but has not led to any change of policies. In fact, uh, as you heard earlier on your show, uh, Vice President Harris was just saying yesterday uh, that we will not place any conditions whatsoever uh, on our arms to Israel. And that is unlike any uh, arms transfer decision I've ever been a part of. There's always discussion about should we condition this to address human rights issues. So who is leading this, Josh Paul? Who is preventing this? Who is suppressing all of this discussion within the State Department? I, I honestly think in some ways it is coming from the very top of the U.S. government uh, and from the Biden White House. Uh, you know, there are many in the State Department uh, and across government who have reached out to me in recent weeks since I left uh, to express their support, but also to say how difficult and how horrific they are finding uh, U.S. policy and yet are being told when they try to raise these concerns, look, you can get emotional support. If you're finding this difficult, we'll find you something else to work on. But don't question the policy because it's coming from the top. The HuffPost has this new piece that reports a task force on preventing atrocities did not meet until two weeks into the war. And officials say department leaders are telling them their expertise won't affect policy. Explain what goes on. So whenever there is a crisis, as there is right now uh, in Israel and Gaza, the department sets up a task force or multiple task forces that are uniquely uh, shaped to address that crisis. So, for example, in the context of uh, an earthquake, they might bring in experts on, you know, refugee issues, on weather issues, on disease issues, uh, you know, that that sort of, uh, you know, broad swath of people. Uh, In the context of Gaza, they have set up a a task force to look at this problem. But according to the report you cite, it does not include the Bureau of Population population, refugees and migration uh, who are responsible for, you know, U.S. support to refugee issues. So it is either a stunning oversight or it is uh, an intentional disregard uh, for the humanity of Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Um, At a meeting on October 26, a State Department source told you they recalled a top official advising um, staff to shift their focus away from Israel-Palestine and seek to make a difference in other parts of the world. Uh, So I don't believe that that was a conversation that I had with someone, but that is in the same report in the Huffington Post that you cite. Yes. So they're directing them uh, not even to make comments on this, just stop talking about Israel-Palestine. Yes, that's right. Um, And I think, look, I mean, that reflects a... a tension or a a censorship, right, that we are seeing not only in the U.S. government. I think what's interesting here uh, is that there is this censorship that has existed and expanded, uh, you know, to colleges and universities where you talked about the doxing. I've also heard from many people across the American private sector, uh, both from the Arab American community, but also more broadly from from all sorts of diverse communities who've said we are afraid to speak up on this because we are in fear of our jobs. It's the same climate in government. And that is just not American. So I wanted to ask you about this uh, In These Times report that the White House has requested an unprecedented loophole in arms spending to allow it to be able to conduct arms deals with Israel in complete secrecy without oversight from Congress or the public. 
Yes, so we provide Israel with $3.3 billion a year in foreign military financing, which is the State Department and U.S. government's primary function or primary me uh, mechanism uh, for funding the sale of arms to other countries. Uh, of note, uh, you know, we typically provide, uh, if setting aside Ukraine, uh, about $6 billion a year in foreign military financing around the world. So Israel already gets more than half of that. Uh, the language in the supplemental request that the Biden administration set up, sent up uh, would remove the requirement to notify Congress of any arms sales conducted under that funding. Uh, typically, there is a process where for any major defense sale, uh, Congress is notified of it. And there's actually a process prior to the formal notification where Congress gets to ask questions, uh, poke, prod, delay. Uh, and then if it wishes to oppose a sale, can raise a joint resolution of disapproval on the floor. Uh, what this proposal would do is essentially destroy all of that, remove all of that, remove that congressional oversight, remove that congressional ability to object. Uh, it is unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and I cannot imagine that the uh, uh, committees of jurisdiction are, are viewing it very favorably because it is just, you know, such a damaging approach that also sets horrible precedent for other countries with whom, you know, future administrations may decide they don't want Congress to be involved. Uh, since you're in charge of arms sales, what does this $14 billion that, um, well, it looks like both houses want to send it to Israel. It's just that yes. the House one is controversial because they want to take that $14 billion from the IRS. And also they want to sever uh, the funding for Israel from the funding for Ukraine. And uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate majority leader, says he won't consider this bill. But it sounds like there is enough support in both houses for that extra, not the 3.8 or 3.3 billion yearly aid to Israel, but an extra $14 billion. You're the expert on arms sales. What would it be used for? Yeah, and, and let me just say, I, I think there is, you know, almost or near unanimous congressional support for this uh, further military assistance to Israel. And I think what's fascinating about that is also there's a massive disconnect between where Congress is on these issues and where I think if you look at the polling, the American public are. Uh, and I think the current crisis is really crystallizing that difference. I don't think it'll make any difference in terms of the passage of this package, uh, but it may do down the line. Uh, with regards to this package specifically, it includes 3.5 billion in foreign military financing. Uh, Israel can draw on that to purchase essentially what it wants. Uh, and what's unusual about this as well, uh, in addition to the removal of the notification, is that Israel would be entitled under the proposal Center Congress to spend all of this money within its own defense industry. Uh, Israel is, of course, a top 10 exporter of arms around the world, uh, often competing with the United States. And the idea that we will be providing funding to subsidize that competition uh, is, is really unimaginable. Uh, but on top of that, the package also provides uh, further funding uh, from the Defense Department side for mis air and missile defense for Israel, for Iron Dome. And, and let me be clear, my concern here is on lethal assistance to Israel. Uh, when it comes to protecting civilians from rocket attacks, I believe that they should be. I don't believe anyone should have to live in fear of their homes, in their homes, uh, from rockets raining down on them. Although I believe that's the case whether they are in Israel under Iron Dome or whether they are in Gaza, for example. Uh, and, of course, we never ask that question. Uh, the uh, funding, finally, would also include research and development funding uh, for equipment such as uh, there is an experimental laser project uh, called Iron Beam, which the U.S. and Israel are working together on, uh, air and missile defense system. If this is an emergency request, 
Why are we looking at research and development for projects that have not even materialized yet? That doesn't sound like an emergency to me. So as with the arms transfers I saw when I was departing from the department, uh, I think there is just a rush to push everything they can while they feel there is a, a window of political opportunity here where there will be no significant opposition. What kind of response uh, was there to your resignation? Uh, so... Uh, to my resignation, I would say there has been an overwhelming response uh, that I've heard from folks, from colleagues inside not only the State Department, uh, but across the U.S. government, actually, uh, on the Hill, uh, in the Defense Department, in the uniformed military services, including in combatant commands around the world. Uh, people have reached to, out to me to say, uh, you know, we, we fully agree with you. Uh, you know, obviously, everyone has their own personal circumstances. Uh, you know, I think if we had uh, universal health care, it would make it a bit easier for people to stand up on principle. Uh, I myself am you know, trying to figure out what I do next on health care. But, but the point is that so many people have reached out to say, we hear you, we agree with you. And I think, you know, one of the things I found is that a lot of people can be in individual offices and say, there is no, I can't speak up because I will, I will lose my job. I will put my career in jeopardy. And there's no one else here I can talk to. And yet I'm hearing from someone else just a few desks over who's saying the same thing. Uh, so I think there really is a, a communications crisis, a transparency crisis uh, within the U.S. government and a policy crisis, because when you can't talk about foreign policy, when you can't debate, when you can't criticize, you don't end up with good policy. Josh Paul, why was this the last straw for you? I mean, for example, um, if you were in charge of weapons sales, presumably you were dealing with Saudi Arabia, uh, notoriously authoritarian. Uh, U.S. state uh, U.S. agencies concluded, even in just one case, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, that uh, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, was responsible for this. Um, you oversaw arms sales to them, presumably. Why Israel? So let me just be clear. I was one of multiple people involved in the arms sales process. Uh, arms sales themselves are a presidential authority that is delegated to the Secretary of State and then through the Secretary of State to the Undersecretary, uh, who, is, who is actually responsible for approving them uh, for the most part. Uh, but you're right. And, and as I said in my resignation letter, in my time in the department, I dealt with many you know, morally challenging, controversial arms sales. Uh, I think what made the difference for me here is that for all of those previous instances, even under the Trump administration, mind you, uh, there was always room for discussion and debate and the ability to mitigate some of the worst possible outcomes, uh, to delay sales uh, until you know, crises had passed so that they weren't contributing immediately into a humanitarian crisis, uh, to work with Congress and, and be confident that once the policy debate had ended in State Department, there would be a congressional piece to it too. And, and Congress genuinely has stood up in the past repeatedly on matters of human rights and arms sales. What was different here was that there was none of that. There was no debate. There was no space for debate. Uh, and there was also no congressional appetite or willingness to have debate. There's going to be a major march in Washington tomorrow. 350 people are in, in, arrested in Philly. Uh, we're going to play some clips of a major protest in Boston that happened last night. Um, how much does grassroots protests like this, the thousands of people are protesting around the country, the shutdown of Grand Central by Jewish groups uh, just last Friday night, have on the State Department, on the White House? So I don't think it has much impact on the State Department. Uh, and that's OK, because I think policy processes are, are meant to happen within a, a policy framework. For, again, the problem is they're not happening. Uh, 
I think it does have an impact on the White House. I think we've seen a significant change in tone in the last few weeks, uh, not because there is a sudden deep care, frankly, uh, for Palestinian civilian casualties on their own merits, but because there is a, a sense that there is a political crisis here developing for the Biden administration, uh, that many people are saying, you know, we're just going to sit out the next election. Uh, we have lost faith uh, in this White House, in this administration. So I think that does uh, have an impact. And, and let me also say, I have found uh, it incredibly moving as well to watch these protests. You know, I was up on the hill uh, for meetings, uh, you know, this week and last week and came across in in one office a sit-in that was happening where there was a group of Jewish students uh, singing uh, peace songs and holding up signs that said, Save Gaza. I found that incredibly moving. And I think it also tells Congress and it tells this administration that they are not in line with much of American public opinion. Uh, I think it's a much needed message. Josh Paul, veteran State Department official who worked on arms deals and resigned last month in protest of a push to increase arms sales to Israel amidst the attack on Gaza. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We end today's show with voices from the streets of Boston, where hundreds of faith leaders and clergy rallied Thursday to demand Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey support a ceasefire. Elsa. I'm the daughter of Holocaust refugees, and I'm here because it's outrageous to me the Israeli government is committing genocide in the name of people like my parents. And I work with Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, We uh, demand a ceasefire now before even more innocent lives get lost. I'm Jill. I'm active in Jewish Voice for Peace. I'm here to demand Senator Warren declare a ceasefire and to stand up for justice. She usually does stand up for justice in different kinds of ways. For some reason, she just can't seem to stand up for Palestinian lives. They are bombing everything, churches, hospitals, roads. There's no place to go. So we are demanding Warren to do the right thing. My name is Rami. Uh, I am here today marching uh, because I think we need to have a ceasefire. Um, I think it's really important that the world see that Jewish community believes in a ceasefire uh, and thinks that what Israel is doing right now is wrong and that the Jewish community is not a monolith and there isn't one uniform perspective standing with Israel on this one. My name is Leora. I am a rabbi in Jamaica Plain. Anyone who's here today might be risking things to be here, relationships or employment. And I'm so proud to be here across many kinds of difference and united in our call for a ceasefire now. We mourn for all of the dead and we fight for all of the living. Hospitals are not safe. My name is Mohamed Musalam. I am a khatib uh, here in uh, Massachusetts in Malden. If ceasefire is not now, when will it be? 
Are they waiting for the entire population of Gaza to be completely wiped out? Are they waiting for 10 more thousand, 20 more thousand people de- dying before they call for ceasefire? Enough is enough. I do not come here alone. I carry my people in my bones. So we're here at Voices the from Senator protest in Boston last night calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. At least 23 people were arrested. This comes as 13 Democratic senators call for short-term secession of hostilities in Gaza. And that does it for our show. Special thanks to Hani Massoud, Democracy Now! Produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresina, Tammy Warrenoff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.